Grace and peace be with you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, purify our conscience by your daily visitation, that your Son, Jesus Christ, at his coming may find in us a spacious room prepared for himself, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's great. It starts with an earthquake and birds and planes, an airplane, and Liddy Bruce is not afraid. I have hurricane. Listen to yourself churn. World, world serves its own needs. Listen to your heart bleed. Tell me with the rapture and the reverent in the right. You vitriolic, patriotic, slam fight, bright light, feeling pretty sight. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. This was a song that was all the rage in my teen years, and it stuck with me over the course of my life as I pay attention to what's happening in the world around us and in our culture. You can see that our world is fascinated with things apocalyptic and the end of all things. We see it in our movies. We hear it in our music. We read it in our novels. We discuss it in our conversations. There's something about the end that fires the imagination. For the five decades that I have walked this earth, for most of that time, I have been conscious, aware of the fact that the Lord Jesus has promised to return. And it is that knowledge, that awareness of the coming of the Lord that from my childhood on has sort of shaped my consciousness, my worldview, my life. It shaped my conscience. There's something about living with this awareness that Jesus will return any day and at any moment that can have a profound impact on your life. This idea of the coming of the Lord, uh, I first became aware of it in my childhood. It was sort of in the atmosphere, the air we were breathing, the water we were drinking. One of the most vivid memories I have is playing soccer and one of the kids on my soccer team uh, and I were running along with our teammates on the soccer field and one kid stopped and he looked up into the sky and he pointed at these glorious rays of light that were breaking through towering white clouds above our soccer field. We all stopped to see what he was pointing at and he said, you know what this means? It means that Jesus is coming soon. And we all looked at each other like, that's weird. But it was scary at the same time. He said that he learned that from his pastor, and I'd never heard anything like that. But it stayed with me. That scary feeling stayed with me and eventually sparked my curiosity. But when you're in the fourth grade, you don't know what to do with that profound knowledge that that means that the Lord Jesus is coming soon. But it sticks with you. As we explore 2 Peter 3 today, we're going to touch on the coming of the Lord and the end of the world. And my prayer and my hope is that I don't come across like the minister that I heard about who preached on God's judgment and sin, and at the end of his sermon said, if you do not receive Christ as Savior, you will suffer grave eschatological ramifications. Well, at the end of that service, apparently one of his parishioners went up to him and asked, Pastor, do you mean that a person who doesn't believe in Christ will go to hell? And the pastor said, 
precisely. And the old parishioner said, then say so. (laughs) And legend has it that that parishioner was C.S. Lewis. And so I hope to speak clearly and plainly about the things that we will explore in 2 Peter 3 today. Because my goal and purpose is to help you prepare yourself for the coming of the Lord. If you truly believe the Lord Jesus is coming for you, you're going to live in such a way that you speed his coming. In other words, you're going to live in a way that you really want him to come right now. But if you don't believe he's coming for you, if maybe you believe he's just coming to get you, then you're going to live in a way that you hope he never comes. Because you don't want to mess with that. But as you live differently, as you pursue the coming of the Lord, I want you to live more carefully, more authentically as baptized Christians. As you've heard, today is the fourth Sunday in Advent, and this is our last sermon in the Advent series that we're doing on Jesus, the coming King. We're looking at the second Advent of Jesus, the second coming of Christ. And I hope that you have detected that there is a rhyme and reason to the way we have approached this series. So far, we have heard about the one who is coming and what will happen at his coming. We started with an epic sermon on anticipation and continued with a message on transformation. And last week heard another marvelous sermon on consummation. And today, well, the word of the day is preparation. We're going to hear what we must do to prepare ourselves for the coming king. A few weeks ago, our pastoral intern preached on a parable, a parable that Jesus told. And to remind you, a parable is simply a story that tells the truth from a slightly different angle. And in that sermon, we heard this parable and we heard Jesus tell his followers Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Apostle Peter, who gave us 2 Peter, which we are exploring today, was present when Jesus told that story. And his response to Jesus's parable was, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And you got to love Peter. You got to love Peter because he's so much like you. He's so much like us wondering, is this sermon for me or is it for someone else? Because if it's, I know someone who needs to hear it, it comes across that way. And often we do that with God's word. We're not sure, is this for me or is it for someone else? And Jesus had just said, you also must be ready. So in case you have a little bit of St. Peter in you thinking that this sermon is not for you, it might be for others, let's be very clear right now. This is for you. This sermon is for you. And it's helping us prepare for the coming of the Lord. Now, there are all kinds of issues with this, right? In the... In the, in the passage we just heard, we learned that in light of the promise of the coming king, not everyone is excited about it or seeking the Lord or trying to speed his coming. In fact, there's this group of people known as scoffers and skeptics, scoffers and skeptics that 
don't think the Lord is going to come. And so they raise all kinds of questions, questions like, what's taking so long? Where is this so-called promise of his coming? And imagine if they were saying those kinds of things in Peter's time, just a few decades after people started hearing the promise that Jesus made of his coming. Well, now we're 2,000 years down the road. Imagine what scoffers and skeptics are saying in our day and age. And there are plenty of them. You don't have to look very far to bump into a variety of scoffers and skeptics. Maybe the low-hanging fruit for the sake of our time today would be to look at the new atheists or the ex-evangelicals that are so common in our day. Both of them having issues with the things of God. And they have taken taunting and trash-talking to the next level. And they do that because they think they're going to get away with it. They don't feel any threat or fear of God. They don't expect Jesus is going to do anything to defend himself. And so they rant and they rave about all sorts of things. The new atheists hate all the gods that they don't believe in. And the ex-evangelicals are now rejecting all the so-called gobbledygook that they once embraced. What is fueling this? What's driving this in their lives? Rage and shame are two common denominators, two common features of this. Rage and shame are fueling their disbelief and their denial of the things of God. Only they have replaced the ancient question, did God really say, with a new question, a more contemporary question. Doesn't even matter if God said anything at all. After all, from their point of view, they look around and they say, well, where is the promise of his coming? As far back in the time as we can see, everything continues on as it always has been. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. They don't see any cataclysmic end. They don't see the sky rip open. They don't see the glory of Christ appearing. And so they draw this conclusion that man's experience disproves God's revelation. That our progress trumps his promise. And that might seem plausible to some, and it is terribly plausible to some around us, perhaps even some in our families. But the Apostle Peter pushes back on those scoffers and skeptics by appealing to the power of the truth of the gospel when he says, in essence, don't misinterpret the patience of the Lord as procrastination. And don't mistake the patience of the Lord as passivity. He says explicitly, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Why? Because although time seems absolute to us, time is relative to God. That's why it says a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day for the Lord. And so if you think about it from God's point of view, from God's point of view, it's only been like a few days since he made the promises. For us, it's been a few hundred or perhaps a couple of thousand years. But God's patience is very different than our hastiness. Peter says, the Lord is patient with you. He's patient with all of you baptized Christians. He's patient with you who, as he says at the opening of the letter, he's patient with you who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't want you to move away too quickly from 
this idea of the patience of God. I didn't give much thought to the patience of God for many years in my life, but one day I had a conversation with my late uncle, Johnny Dale, whom we all called Big John. Johnny Dale, Big John, lived a fast and furious life for most of his life, especially in his early years. He wreaked havoc on the world. He brought grief and sorrow and shame on his family. He caused much trouble for himself. He spent most of his early life in and out of different prisons in Oklahoma, California, Texas. Of course, he was our favorite uncle. Along the way, he became a shade tree philosopher. And somewhere in the midst of his story, Jesus found him. And he began to do what he liked to call read the good book. And he read the good book. And often in our conversations, he would come across like a biblical poet. A few years ago, before he passed from this life to go meet the Lord, we were in a conversation and he looked me in the eyes and he said, in God's patience, in his patience is our salvation. In God's patience is our salvation. He was right. The Greek word for patience means long-suffering. So think of God's patience, as one commentator put it, as a time of active self-restraint in the face of all that is done on the earth. A picture of God's continuing to suffer the ongoing injustice of humankind. Not simply the injustice that we perform against each other, but the injustice that we practice against the Lord. Peter insists that God is not procrastinating. God is not passively letting the world get away with injustice, violence, rebellion, or sin. God is simply patient with you. And he tells us why God is patient with you. Here's why. Because he does not actively will that any should perish. Rather, he truly and actively wills that all should reach repentance. Repentance here is presented as a goal of life, a destination, a place to get to. And God wants you to get there. Why? Because he loves you. And he wants you to come home. That's why. This simply echoes what God had said through the prophet Ezekiel many, many years ago when he said, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? It's a very different picture than the one that is commonly presented to us of God who many people will think God gets his jollies or gets his thrills out of burning people, roasting them, crushing them. That is not what he says of himself. He's not like a touchy or grumpy old man ready to blast anyone who gets on his lawn or who goes off course just a little bit. No, he's presented here as one who is patient as one who puts up with an awful lot from us. But Peter makes it clear that when his patience runs out, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And when he comes like a thief, he will destroy some, and he will deliver others, and then his promise will be fulfilled. 
Yesterday, one of our daughters went out to her car to get something, and to her surprise, a thief had come in the night and rifled through her car looking for valuables, found her emergency cash in the glove box, and took it. And can you believe he didn't even leave a note? The Lord is no thief. He simply comes like a thief when you least expect it. He doesn't come to steal or take anything that doesn't already belong to him. But he will come and it will be a time of great surprise. And so the question we must ask in light of these things is, how shall we live? What should we do? What does the Lord require of us? What can we do here and now to prepare ourselves for his coming? Well, as we prepare ourselves for his coming, what are we showing? If we take it seriously, this act of preparation, we're showing that we believe he is there, that he's not silent, he's not static. We also show that we believe he is coming for us. And we want to be ready when he comes. So I want all of you to look for the Lord and prepare yourselves for the coming of the King. But I don't simply want you to be there as, as a spectator. I want you to be there as a participant. And what must you do if you're going to prepare for the Lord? Well, at the very heart of this teaching, at the very heart of this passage is we must watch and wait. We must watch and wait. And there are several ways that Peter tells us we must do that. And so with the remaining time that I have, I would like to give you in very simple black and white practical terms some things that you can do to prepare for the coming of the Lord. And so this should be easy enough for the, uh, the most mature among us to grasp and also for even the youngest and the least mature of us to grasp. Watch and wait. How do you watch and wait? Well, you watch and wait in penitence. Look at verse 9. God's will for you is not that you perish, but that you repent. God wants you to stay out of trouble. How? By making real changes in your life. Penitence is the deep and heartfelt sorrow for the sin that you have committed. And it's the deep and heartfelt sorrow for that sin that moves you away from sin to real change. Martin Luther said that all of life is repentance. And it sounded amazing when he said that. Many people were baffled by it. But he was right. And what he was simply saying is that all of life is repentance. All of life is about change. and We've got to change. We need to change. We're always changing and we're always going to need to change until the Lord comes. And penitence is that feeling that we have in our hearts that never really goes away. And here's why. Because penitence is that feeling that has latched on to a truth that says, hey, you are living in this paradoxical tension. Paradoxical tension. And here's what it is. The more you repent, the more you need to repent. The more you change, the more you need to change. The more you grow in holiness, the more aware you become of your sinfulness. The more you repent your sins, the more you rejoice in God's grace. But the point is, you're constantly living in this state of tension. You're living the dash of your life out in the in the patience and the promise of God. He has given you time in your life to make things right with him. And because repenting is turning away from prison and turning towards paradise, 
At the end of it, there is the promise of refreshment and hope. This is what Peter said once when he preached, and you find this in the book of Acts chapter 3. Peter says, we repent so that times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. We also repent so that God will send Jesus to us. We repent because we're looking for the coming king. And as we repent and as we pursue holiness and godliness, this real change of life, we find that we're in pursuit of purity. Purity. So we wait and we watch in purity. This is verse 14. Beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Earlier in the letter, Peter called the scoffers and the skeptics that we saw earlier, he called them blots and blemishes. They were the unclean. They were the dirty folks, the ones who had wrecked their lives. They were the messy ones that would contaminate you. But here, he wants us to become very different than them. He wants us to become like Jesus, spotless and blameless in our life. And that is a work of God's grace. It is a work of God's Holy Spirit and the Word of God in us, helping us participate in the life of Jesus. And as we do that, we become more and more like him. As we pursue imitation with Christ, we begin to participate in his life. And Peter is encouraging this in us. The the phrase spotless and blameless, by the way, is sacrificial language. Sacrificial language is the language used to describe the kinds of offerings that the priest would present to God in the Old Testament. Well, now we are those offerings. We are those sacrifices and we are being brought to God, offered up as living sacrifices to him. We are the lambs being led to slaughter, so to speak but we do it for the glory of God. We're like priests set apart from the world for the purposes of God. That's holiness. And I want you to see in this passage that there is a kind of urgency involved in it. You catch it in the word diligent. Be diligent. There's a kind of urgency involved in this. To be diligent means to get after it right now. Not tomorrow. Not next month when you make your resolutions for the new year. Right now. There's a kind of diligence that the Lord requires of us. And the reason it's so important is not because, or not just because it prevents you from getting in trouble with the Lord. It's important because it pleases the Lord. You see a different motivation there. It's one thing to just try to get God off your back so that he leaves you alone. It's another thing to please the Lord, to do what is right and good because he wants you to do it. And in doing that, you are preparing yourself to enter into the life that Jesus is preparing for you. The room that he's making for you in his father's house in the new heavens and the new earth. So you want to prepare your life now for the life then. And if you do these things, that leads to peace. That's also verse 14, where we learn to watch and wait in peace. Sometimes you might hear about the coming of the Lord and you feel like I did when I was in the fourth grade. A deep sense of fear and dread, like what's going to happen to me if he comes right now? But if you're doing what the Lord has called you to do and walking in union with Christ, you have nothing to fear about the coming of the Lord. You don't have to live with this sense of frantic or fretful spirit wondering what will happen. 
If you're practicing repentance, if you're pursuing holiness, if you know Jesus is coming for you and not coming to get you, you can live with a deep sense of peace. You'll have confidence and calm in the presence of God. Calvin said it this way, This peace is the quietness of soul at ease which rests on the word of God. Quietness of soul at ease which rests. And who doesn't want rest or peace or quiet in this life and the life to come? And this peace is vital because there are dangers all around us that are seeking to draw us off sides, to drag us out of pocket, to bring us into trouble. And that is why we need to watch and wait in the right place. Verse 17 Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. You see the risk and the danger there, right? Peter is saying, look, stand your ground, stay in place, secure your position in Christ. Don't let yourselves be destabilized by all the scoffers and the skeptics that are around you. And that's what they're trying to do is destabilize you to bring you down, not to lift you up. Like the serpent in the garden, they are subtle and strategic. And they're all running the same plays. They all have the same strategery, so to speak. They want you to doubt God's promise. They want you to distort God's promise in your own heart and life. And ultimately, they want you either to deny his promise or disobey it, his word. And so the spiritual dangers are real, and so is the struggle. But we've got to struggle to maintain our position in Christ And to help each other do the same. And that's why we need to be all the more diligent and deliberate. As Peter says in chapter 1 of his letter. To make your calling and election sure. Don't take anything for granted. Don't sit back and think it's all going to happen whether you're involved or not. Don't assume or presume on God's grace. Make your calling and election sure. Participate in the life of God with the help of the Holy Spirit. Because if you watch and wait the way you should, the promise is you will never fall. You will never be destabilized. You'll never collapse under the pressure. But instead, more positively, there will be a richly provided interest for you into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if Peter is to be trusted, if your pastors are to be trusted, if one of the songs we sang today is to be trusted It will be totally worth the wait. But in the meantime, watch and wait in progress. Verse 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word grow there means to increase and to expand. This is not about becoming the smartest guy in the room. This is not about Peter saying, hey, you... I'm going to give you justification for buying all the fat books and going to all the conferences you want to go to. No. Peter wants us to grow in this interpersonal, relational knowledge of Jesus. This is not about intellectual and propositional knowledge. Jesus is someone we need to know. We cultivate a relationship with him. And this takes meditation, contemplation, reflection on the person and work of Christ. If you can't find anything else to do or anything else to read, at least read the Gospels. And there you will meet Jesus 
And there you can grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. This is not about gathering facts and data about him. It is about stirring affections and devotions for him. And that leads me to the last point. Watch and wait in praise. Watch and wait in praise. Verse 18, as you prepare for the return of the king, you must shout his praises. You must shout his praises. To Jesus be the glory from now to the day of eternity, world without end. Amen. This is dress rehearsal for us. Preparing us for what we will do for all the ages when Christ returns. Sadly, I must tell you that I've been in ministry long enough now to see not quite an evolution, but a devolution of worship among God's people. Recent studies by Barna and others have indicated that Christianity is in decline in the United States of America over the last few years. And it's been accelerated over the last two years as more and more people have either abandoned the faith or just stayed at home and stopped practicing the faith. The question I want to pose to you is, do you want to be a part of the solution or a part of the problem? What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, when you think about what it means to worship, what it means to wait and watch in praise, do you think... Worship is an obligation, a delightful duty that the Lord has laid upon his people. Or do you think of worship as something that's optimal? Like if all the stars line up and it doesn't rain and your breakfast doesn't irritate your stomach, then yeah, it'd be a good day to go to worship. Or is it just simply optional to you? That if it fits in your schedule, if you make time for it, or well, I don't know, whether you do it or not, it doesn't really matter. How do you approach worship? If you are preparing for the coming of the Lord, you have to know that it is an obligation laid upon the people of God by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we turn the new year, let me encourage you as one of your pastors to make every effort, make it a resolution that you will gather with God's people every Lord's day. Granted, there are extenuating circumstances. I get that. But outside of those, make it your ambition to gather with God's people every Lord's Day. You simply cannot prepare for the coming of the King if you're not going to participate in the worship and praise of the King who is coming. Well, these are just a few of the practical things you can do to prepare yourself for the coming of the Lord. And if you do these things, you will find that you are doing more than just surviving the apocalypse, that you will, in fact, be thriving in the midst of it. I know that life doesn't always turn out the way you want, and things can get uh, dicey, and things can be very difficult. And you might wonder why you are where you are, what has happened to you, and if there's anything you can do about it. But as a wise wizard once told a struggling hobbit, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. What will you do with that dash between your birth and your death, otherwise known as the patience of God in your life? Are you going to test his patience or 
are you going to trust his patience? And the way you answer that and the way you live it out matters very much for time and for eternity. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray.